0: Thank you so much. What a wonderful moment of worship. I'm grateful to all of you, but especially allow me to say I'm thankful to God and to his redeeming son. I trust you are more relaxed than I am and uh, more comfortable than I am in this moment, but I want to acknowledge and thank Dr. Tennant, a most blessed birthday, sir. And yes. Uh, to the uh, widening family of Asbury that I'm coming to know and to greet and to learn names, but to all of the uh, administrators and cabinet and I don't know if there are any board members here, uh, to faculty and staff and to those who share the pulpit and our musicians and all of those of you who planned and made sure that things were in order. I want to say thank you. I want to acknowledge and Thank uh, Reverend McGrawing for your willingness to share this space of grace, and to uh, my colleague whom I highly revere and honor, to Reverend Covington and all the people of God. uh, There is one man in particular whose feet on the planet have my total affection, and uh, he's the second strong man in my life after the Savior, but I want to acknowledge my husband. Um, Reverend Alvin James, our 50 years of walking together. Uh, in the Is the volume all right? I know sometimes my voice drops a little low, so you can let me know. Uh, would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, you have called us together, And in these moments of self-examination and perhaps even corporate repentance, times of praise and seeking you. We seek to give ourselves to you, even as the hymn has said, to trust you in a sweet trust and to surrender all to you. And we pray, O Lord, that we might give and receive that which you have for us, nothing more and nothing less. You are our healer, you are our helper, and your grace is all sufficient. We rest in you and thank you for the immensity of your presence in Christ's name. Amen. Not sure which mic I'm on. Perhaps a Monday. The... All right, on the lapel mic. You've heard the reading of the word from Acts, the ninth chapter, uh, and a familiar story and passage there that speaks of Peter's itinerant work as he followed in the path of Philip who had already done much of the evangelistic preparation for him. And so it is that Peter, in the way of apostolic mission and commissioning, as scripture says, he went here and there in the New Revised Standard Version, that he moved around, and as he did so, he came among the saints. Tell me when you want me to adjust this more. Okay, came among the saints and the people first at Lydda. Uh, The two twin cities, significant cities there on the coastal plains of Sharon. Uh, He is at Lydda first, and he moves among the believers in a very rare form. Luke, as a writer, refers to them as the saints, letting us know that he's moving among those that are devoted and who are already believers. And he moves from there to Joppa. Let me give you a bit of background as we approach, and I ask you to be prayerful with me for the next few moments in this perhaps odd title of the height of fashion, the height of fashion. I don't think much of uh, labels often or designer matters, so we obviously are speaking of something else, of a spiritual clothing, a word of wearing God, of being clothed and putting on Christ. A bit of background to this text and perhaps hopefully to our lives, it's that sometimes we all run across persons who we might say have R-rated lives, and they ask things like, will the presence of Christ really make a difference in my life? But referring to words from the Message Bible in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 and 30, Jesus says there, walk with me and work with me and watch me and see how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. He says, I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. So, the height of fashion. Spiritual formation and transformation is familiar to all of you and is a common phrase used, as I've learned, on these campuses and on this ground. But it merely speaks of just keeping company with Jesus, just hosting his presence as our risen Lord, And so these unforced rhythms of grace, as Eugene Peterson would offer to us, are not a result of increased self-effort. As a matter of fact, doing more work just to earn the favor of the Lord is mutually exclusive of the kind of grace that we are talking about. And so from the very beginning of time, we find that the church linked its desire for more of Jesus— with intentional practices, relationships, and experiences that would usher them into that presence. The unforced rhythms of grace uh, I found to be prominent like glistening threads in this particular passage. Others would probably hurry to the subsequent passage where Peter, in a very renowned way, introduces Cornelius to the Savior. But I'm more concerned about what led up to that grand change, what happened in that pre-momentous moment, which I think is equally as important. And so allow me to just introduce the text a little bit. You know by now that we're talking about means of grace as they emerge from this text. And in doing so, we highlight several things. I trust you heard the reading, or we'll read it again later. But we notice something about the nature and the movement and the flow and the rhythm of grace. Peter begins by going here and there. He is on an itinerant mission. It says he returns and travels south to Lydda. And from there, he goes about 10 or 11 miles further uh, to Joppa. A city which means beauty, at least it said that it means beauty. And while he's in Lida, he's traveling among the saints. And already it says something to us about the nature of grace. The grace is not the exclusive property of any one locale. Grace does not belong belong in any monopoly to any one people or to any one group. But grace is intended to be spread. Uh, you're sitting very straight and proper, and so maybe if you relax a little bit and think about how Grace will shift us out of comfortable postures and positions, grace has a flow and a movement to it, an unforced rhythm of grace and so it's only right that how the Lord has used Peter as a vehicle in Lida that he would find himself called and commissioned with signs and wonderings follow to go from Lida to Joppa. And he does so knowing that he cannot take credit. And so he is careful when he heals Aeneas, the paralytic uh, in the beginning verses of our privileged text, that he says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. He recognizes that he is in a subordinate position, but that all of the credit goes to the master. And this the scripture is wonderfully reminiscent because it reminds us of the former beggar that Peter had encountered. It reminds us of both of the miracles that are in this text speak to us even of the prophets and the continu- the, the continuousness that we find, the consistency in the text, both with Elijah and with Elisha, uh, as they are used as vehicles to minister the grace of God and to see healing as a result and to give back to widows uh, their sons. And so we see, and when we refer to grace, that its nature is that there is no monopoly on grace. Contrary to some of our, oh, I don't want to get in trouble my first time in this pulpit, but denominational friends, there may not be a headquarters on grace But grace moves that the divine activity of God, it ripples out, and perhaps it does not have an epicenter per se. The work that had been done in Jerusalem is now moving further and deeper into Gentile territory. No one people, no one group, no one style, no one expression. But grace that was suited for Aeneas, and that was a critical case as well. He was paralyzed. Scripture says bedridden for eight years. We don't know what it was that caused his malady. But we find that when uh, Peter is sought by two men after Tabitha, her Greek name Dorcas, has died, this maker and sower of garments, this one who takes fabrics and swatches like some of you have and turns them into garments and coverings for widows, that she is now a dead disciple. And it is at that instance that they sinned for Peter. And so the same grace that worked for Aeneas in his paralyzed condition uh, is the same grace that works to resurrect, or better said perhaps to resuscitate, this disciple. That the same grace that works in the burials is the same grace that works in the pulpit, that the same grace that works in Soweto is the same grace that works in Savannah, that the same grace that puts food on the table is the same grace that knits us together and makes us one family of God, no one people, no one locale, and nothing is too difficult for grace that is sufficient. When we look at the text, we find also, when talking about the nature of grace, and the gr- results of grace are observable. And so I think it's imperative that we know that after the healing of Aeneas, Peter says to him, get up, reminding us also of the healing of Jairus's uh, daughter, get up and take up your bed. It's one of Uh, Your professors that I would love to claim, uh, Professor Craig Keener, who also acknowledges that those words, take up your bed, can also mean um, spread your table or prepare your couch to eat and so scholars are of different opinions. But whether it's take up your bed, and then the the, uh, writers say to us clearly, and help us get an image, that the bed for the paralytic, particularly if he were poor, was likely to be a bed of rags. Mm. A bed of rags that sometimes, once the person is up, becomes a coat of rags. And so the garment on which most likely Aeneas laid becomes a garment that is also transformed to go with him. And even if it means instead spread your couch, there are observable results which say that after the healing, there is evidence, there's a change, there is action, and there is transformation. Dorcas, after Peter has prayed, is also told to get up. And it's the same message that comes to us. It's not difficult. It's not complicated. It's profound in its simplicity. Just get up from where I've been laying. Get up from the filthy rags that bound me. Rags and material are so critical in scripture. From Genesis to Revelations, those swatches, those materials. I have mine. Do you have yours? I'll use my handkerchief. Thank you. Those swatches, those materials, those things, so, so very important from the beginning of Scripture to the end. Even in Genesis, when they were about to be exiled from the garden, God took time to stitch garments, that was grace, and to cover their nakedness. Some said that that was the ultimate reality of their humanity, that they needed to cover I need to cover my barren naked ego and arrogance I need to cover my self-deception and self-absorption but God being a clothier a clothier and God being clothing wearing him prepared garments for Adam and Eve and not only them but so many examples Hannah for her growing son Samuel prepared a garment and took cloth uh, the woman who touched the hem of the garment, and Elijah with the cascading mantle um, that passed on to his mentee, and Rahab, who had a thread of a garment that she hung out of a window, uh, reminding the spies of her covenant. And on and on and on, we find garments, so much so till even the babe was identified as being wrapped in rags. It's important that we know that the nature of grace is not limited to one people, one place, one situation, or one malady, Uh, that grace spreads and it flows, it is impactful, it is effective, that grace is what we need, the gift of unforced rhythms of grace. Let's talk a little bit about this height of fashion, and I don't think I will take much of your time as we think about it, we think that the height of fashion, fashion is a word that's both a noun and a verb. So it's obvious now we're not trying to conjure up images of Paris runways. So it is not the noun that we refer to, but it is the verb. The verb that speaks of fashion, fashion, where, where that identifies us. If I came in this morning in an orange suit, you'd say, mm-hmm. If I came in wearing something else or with um, a bridal outfit of a uh, white you 'd say she has a major problem because What we wear says something about our identity. It molds and shapes how we act as well as what others think and how they see us. And so identity and clothing is extremely important. Not that it has to be fancy, but it has to be the clothing that suits the purpose for that moment. And so we talk about fashion in terms of a verb. It was our Lord who stripped his garment of glory, and put on man, and wore him, and dwelt in him. That's the God that we're talking about. It was Job that said, I put on righteousness, not my own, and it clothed me. And so it is that Peter, as he speaks to this paralytic. He's letting him know that you have been molded and shaped and fashioned by a condition of being bedridden, but that condition and those garments are no longer who you are, that we are being conformed to an image of Christ that we're being made new in him. If I knew how, I'd send out aroma. Someone just gave me some aroma lotion, aromatherapy. I'd send out an aroma and wet your appetites until whether it's through sight or sound or smell, we would begin to desire more of him. Lord, I want more of you. I want to wear God. Sounds a bit presumptuous. I want to sport him. But this is the ultimate of wordless witness this is really lifestyle evangelism not in what I taught not what I promote not in a big cross or a thick bible or letters before behind my name but it's merely just wearing Christ ah, uh, just falling back and who he is and letting him be all that he is in us so the very notion of wearing God is it, it's a promise It can be a little overwhelming at first, but it's also highly suggestive. The height of fashion, this identity that when we wear Christ, it not only identifies us with a group, some things, some clothing um, sets us apart, I think. Some clothing creates barriers and walls and divisions between us. But the clothing of Christ is one that blurs the divisions the distinctions, sometimes social, sometimes economic, sometimes political, even some differences in our faith tenets, that is the height of fashion. Its height becomes it comes from a high place. It flows from the head to the hem. Its height because it's the place that we remember that the anointing oil for Aaron was put not on the flesh, not on his particular personality or style, but it was only the garment that could be saturated with the presence and the anointing of the Lord. And so it is that we want to wear God. And see, many of these social distinctions fall apart. I want to, and I speak now personally as my confessional, and my very present prayer, I want to learn how to put on Christ. I want to learn how to wear the spiritual clothing because it speaks of spiritual disciplines in our life. It speaks of habits. And I thought about nuns who wear a habit And I tried to find something about what does the habit speak to, but allegedly the habit speaks to devotion, but not so much my devotion, but his devotion to me and to us. I need a habit of grace. I need a habit of grace that's not situational, that's not circumstantial, that's not seasonal, but I need a habit yes, of grace. Yes. Uh, I desire it, I want it, and I can, don't have to purchase it, but it's made available for me without price. So I need enough of a garment of grace, a garment of grace, and I'll leave you with three aspects of those garments. That first being the habit of grace. A habit of grace that is available to farmers who have soybeans and have difficulty finding a way to sell them. A grace that's needed for children and adults that long for just simple clean water in Flint, Michigan, and other places we've not exposed. A habit of grace for wives of first responders and men uh, who are in blue as well as mothers of black and brown sons, who both stand in the window of Sisera's mother and wonder will they return or will their blood flow in the streets. I need a habit of grace for every season, every stage, every age of my soul. I need a grace that won't wear down. I need a grace that won't evaporate in changing weather. I need a grace that others meet before they actually encounter me. The Apostle Paul said it this way. He said, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, no male or female, for you are one in Christ. One cloth, one huge cloth. One cloth of variated colors and styles and patterns and stripes and hues, one cloth that fits everyone, one holy cloth, one garment that allows differences to fall away. If you don't remember anything else, I hope it won't be offensive, but you might remember this call this clause. It's not original to me. But some have called this idea of using the disciplines, prayer and fasting, meditation and study, seeking God, one anothering. They've called it kind of a holy gender bending. I didn't make it up. But if nothing else, it means that I am being shaped. I am being molded. I am being conformed to his price. Dorcas was resuscitated. The two men went, and they brought Peter. They heard about the miracle in Lida, and many saw and believed in Lida. And so no doubt the word went to Joppa. And they said, Peter, come in a hurry, because there's an urgency. The body had been washed and laid in an upper room. Perhaps that was a sense that they not only knew of Dorcas's devotion to them and had a habit of grace, But it was evidence of, secondly, a heart of grace. Because it was a heart of grace that made Peter respond. A heart of grace that caused them to be intercessors on behalf of Dorcas. A heart of grace that reminded the widows of how she had loved them and the compassion she had shown. And I told you that the spiritual disciplines are just all over dripping in this text. Because it's grace that advances the kingdom of God. And so it is. It was Dorcas' needles, I imagine, that pierced the fabric and the material and to make coverings. The scripture implies to us that she made inner garments and outer garments for the widows, and they missed her. They were weeping and wailing as Peter was escorted to the room. Some work of grace you can see on the outer, but some of the apparel and grace that covers us is an internal, invisible work that God does. And so it is that as her needles had worked through the fabric and the material, I believe in the same way the nails of Calvary worked through the fabric and the flesh of our Lord, knitting grace for you and grace for me, ripping his flesh like the veil of a temple that I might have new life I sometimes I identify more with Dorcas than Aeneas in that chaotic critical condition sometimes I have to confess I've been more of a dead disciple in a church sometimes with dead disciples but in an upper room space but not no longer moving and acting and covering other people So grace is in demand and it's on demand. Grace that is a habit expresses devotion. Grace that comes from a heart of compassion. And then grace that is a hope, a habit, a heart, and a hope. A hope for the future because Aeneas had to get up and go and spread his couch to eat or carry his bed. And Dorcas opened her eyes, reversing the course of her death, and saw Peter. He extended a hand, formed community, and she stood up. And as in Lida, the same and similarly in Joppa, where people turn to the Lord. Because grace will create a community out of us when we see more that we dislike and differences than the one fabric and the one cloth. It's there. And so it is that the habit of grace is an unforced, not a work of my flesh, but an unforced rhythm of grace. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it and learn. I won't put anything heavy or unfitting on you. And so this passage is full of evidence. There's a witness that comes. And not only is there a witness in both cities, but we find that the paralytic was not just Aeneas, Paralyzed were the widows without their advocate and their intercessor. But perhaps the most pressing paralysis was that of Peter, who did not understand the nature of moving into Gentile territory. Perhaps this was really his deliverance, his healing. Perhaps he was really the dead disciple, made differently before he got to Cornelius. Perhaps the garment was not so much the bed that Aeneas laid on, or the garments that Dorcas made, but it was evidenced in a sheet that came down with with all kinds of beasts that Peter preferred to call unclean. Garments are everywhere, but they need not be haphazard. They can be folded and laid gently in the graves that we used to occupy. We offer the fabric of our lives, the different texture the patterns, for we've been counted worthy. We dare not hoard, but share. We dare not hide, but live openly. We dare not harm, but we must love. We dare not go bare or naked, ego draped, but instead we must bear grace. The word comes to us as a word to arise. Adapted a prayer from a book called Woman Word, Uh, and I'm going to invite you to share this prayer with me in a unified response. It may be a little awkward, and I haven't written it all out, but your response is that of we are rising. We don't need to rehearse three words, do we? We are rising, and we pray. Here and there, whether in lighter or Japa. Here and there, whether male or female, Jew or Greek uh, or Gentile, we are from silence, from bondage, from exclusion, from prejudice, from exploitation, from guilt and affliction, from addictions and against all odds. Like the sun and like the moon, like kites and eagles, like the tide, like prayer and incense, like bread that has been molded. Like Aeneas and like Dorcas. Into hope, into freedom, into speech, into power, into partnership, into significance, into the future. We from the dead. We receive grace and have received grace. And so we are able to give grace. Would you stand with me, please? And except for Reverend Covington, whose swatch I have taken, I'm going to invite you, if it's not uh, too embarrassing to do so, too simplistic or too childish to do so, to consider the little piece of cloth that you have and to be reminded through that simple little swatch that God has covered us with the love that is long-suffering that he has hidden our faults, that he has overruled our frailties, he has moved and washed away our disobedience. And so this reminds us of grace that we have received. I invite you, if you're willing and comfortable to do so, to give that to someone around you and to receive a similar thought from them. But to do so not just mindlessly, but to think about all that God has given us and how it is we can give grace and keep company with him. If you find that there's an area in your life where perhaps you need a more personal moment and demonstration, there are some small pieces of grace that have been laid on the kneelers. You are invited, if you care to, to come to the altar and leave your cloth there and to return with the makings of a new garment. May we do so during the selection that the band is going to give us. Thank you.